Hello, American Shoreline Podcast Network listeners, and welcome back to another episode of Big Tourism with your host, Erica Sears. As you know, on Big Tourism, I love to explore destination management trends, focus on new case studies happening around the world, specifically in coastal zones, as well as interview thought leaders in the space. When I started at my job at the Oregon Coast Visitors Association roughly four years ago, I felt like destination management was sort of this side conversation, maybe one workshop at a conference. And um, since the pandemic, it feels like it's becoming a little more mainstream, maybe not as mainstream as I want still. Um, so I was thrilled that I found this conference that a colleague had sent to me, and it is called the Impact Conference. And it is happening right now in Victoria, BC, and that is where I'm recording from live. And so the Impact Conference wants to convey the importance of tourism as an economic driver, as well as the large footprint it has on the environment, social, and cultural fabric of a destination. And when I was getting ready to come to this conference, I was asking the organizers if I could bring the Yeti microphone, could I do some interviews while I was there? And they said, of course you can. Uh, and they suggested that I interview Elizabeth Becker. And so she is going to be my guest on this episode today. Uh, for anyone that is in tourism, any other fellow destination management aficionados out there, you're going to hear this name and you know exactly who it is because most likely you have read her book, Overbooked, which we're going to talk about today. Um, and Elizabeth Becker is an award-winning author and former correspondent for the New York Times who reported from Europe, Asia, and South America. As the senior foreign editor at National Public Radio, she oversaw the network's foreign bureaus and reporters. She has won awards from the Robert Kennedy Book Awards, Overseas Press Club, and DuPont Columbia. She began her career as a war correspondent for the Washington Post, and she lives in Washington, D.C. with her husband. Additionally, she just wrote another book and released it called You Don't Belong Here, How Three Women Rewrote the Story of War, which became the winner of the 2022 Goldsmith Award. So congratulations, and thank you so much for joining me here. Well, thank you for inviting me. Yes, it's excellent to have you. Um, also, she is the co-chair of the Impact honorary co-chair of the Impact Conference. Um, so let's let's start by just getting to know you a little bit better. Okay. Um, so what I see in all of your bios is we have this war correspondent, right? Mm -hmm. Right. You're just a total badass war correspondent. <laughs> <laughs> and here I am reading your tourism book. So can you walk us through how we how you started writing about war and how, how did that transition into a, a book about tourism? Well, that's in fact the topic of this book that you just mentioned. Um, I uh, was a graduate student at the University of Washington in Seattle. I had a, um, I was studying uh, South Southeast Asia, which is very normal in, in sort of Seattle. Mm -hmm. And um, I had this horrible situation with my professor who um, refused my thesis after I refused to sleep with him. Oh, nice. nice. <laughs> and um, this is a long time ago. Uh, and it was, this is a long time ago. And um, there was no way um, I could survive in that atmosphere. Of he was a tenured professor. So I took my fellowship money and bought a one-way ticket to Cambodia. Now, this was the, Cambodia was the last stage of the American war in Vietnam. And in those days, I arrived January 1973, so I, I covered the last couple of years. <clears throat> That's a 10-year war, and it totally um, dominated our life when we were young. 
65 to 75. So when it when I did this, it was bizarre because women were not foreign correspondents. They were not war correspondents. They were not national correspondents. Um, women, almost the vast majority of women journalists worked on the women's page. Okay. They were not, they were not considered qualified for anything else. So like others before me, I bought a one-way ticket. I had no job waiting for me, but I had a friend. This is how all great stories begin (laughs) with a one-way ticket. (laughs) And, and, um, and, and, um, when I got there, uh, the timing worked out because I arrived just before the Americans began their saturation bombing of Cambodia, which, of course, they did not do a um, press release saying they were going to do it, and it caught a lot of news organizations by surprise. So within four months, I was <clears throat> the local contract reporter for the Washington Post, Newsweek magazine, and NBC Radio, which meant I could survive, and I, and I started my journalism career. And just like all these other women before me, I had no journalism experience, not zero. Yeah, right. just just being there, just well, figuring you, it out. But it was um, it was a real on the job training because I was working beside some of the best reporters in the business. Because it, for men, this was the this was a war was a man's world, and they sent their very best. So and so, how did they? So did they take you under their wing? Were they like, she's here, we're going to help her out? Well, that you have to. I okay, want we'll you to read buy the book. book. Okay, to, we're going to. You have to because I wrote it about the three women who um, who were stellar. I'm just I'm the narrator. I just give you a little bit of my story, but it's important to know the three women. And um, so it's, it's not my story, but I knew enough that I wanted this episode of Women's History and the Vietnam War for women like you, so you know you have some antecedents. Yes, and let me just repeat the name of the book again. It's You Don't Belong Here, How Three Women Rewrote the Story of War. Yes. We're going to leave you with a big cliffhanger, everyone. Yes, good. (laughs) And so then I go back, and I'm in the staff of the Washington Post, uh, local, national. Then I took time off to have children, which, you know, was not, in those days, women would, um, there weren't a lot of us doing that, and um, you had very little um, maternity leave, and most of it was not paid, so I took time off, but then I went, and I wrote my first book, which is about the Cambodian War and the Khmer Rouge, then I went back to work when the kids were older, and I was the foreign editor at National Public Radio. Okay. And that was a wonderful job, but I knew that I wanted to be in print, so that's when I went to the New York Times. And my last beat there, I did national security, agriculture, human rights, foreign policy, et cetera. And my last beat was uh, international economics. Okay. So enters here enters tourism. Exactly. <laughs> However, it, it, it was... Um, it was a sideshow in a sense because I was there during globalization, the beginnings of globalization, and <clears throat> I noticed that the the industry that was really breaking out was tourism. And I talked to my editors about it, and they said, tourism's not an industry. We have travel section. We cover travel stories. But I said, no, no, no. This is huge. And they said, well, we, we write about the hotel industry, we write about the airline industry, but we don't 
have a tourism industry. So when I left daily journalism, the first thing I did was, the first book I wrote was about tourism. I was lucky enough to get a fellowship at Harvard at the Shorenstein Center. And, um, and I was just overwhelmed by what I found. This was not just a big, it was one of the biggest. It is the biggest employer in the world, one out of 10 people. <clears throat> Adds eight trillion to the global economy. This is pre-pandemic, obviously. And um, it, um, it, for all the lovely things we think about travel, we learn new cultures and so on and so forth, it was destructive as hell. Yeah. And nobody had written about it. So... You know. Do you think part of that is because tourism is often, like when we look at the economic numbers in Oregon, some of our jobs are considered agriculture, right? Wineries sometimes are considered under ag, uh, transportation, you know, like tourism, transportation. Is, just is it because sometimes we get embedded into other economic sectors that tourism was sort of invisible here for a while? That's part of it, yes. Definitely that's part of it. Um, one of the reasons is that tourism is considered until now a hobby. It wasn't an industry, it was a hobby. The industries, as I said, were, these, as you just pointed out, in silos, but tourism was this nice hobby. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, um, we're one of the few countries that doesn't have a department of tourism. Other countries have ministries of tourism, department of tourism, maybe tourism and culture, or maybe tourism and, and sports, but um, <clears throat> we did have a tourism agency within the Department of Commerce until um, the mid-90s when uh, the Republican Party won, until the Republican Party won um, majority in the Congress and Representative Newt Gingrich decided that we should, the government had no role in tourism and got rid of that agency. And it never came back? No. Isn't that wild in the United States? Well, it's you, you, in 2022, it's fairly hard not to be wild in yeah. the United States. <laughs> I agree. I okay. agree. So, um, so the, even that small bit was taken away. And there's, there's an office now that keeps track of statistics, and that's about it. And it's crazy because... But it's also part of the philosophy that just let people do whatever, let business do whatever they want. There's no reason to make it in any way fit with the, um, with the desires of, as you know, um, local localities that is called destination management. And the argument also was states all have their little tourism bureau. We don't need national. Well, what, what's the first thing that's cut out of any state budget? Right. Tourism, and it, you know, it's 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 an it's an acronym now. You, all the um, the tourism conferences, countries have their stands and their representatives. I I saw. I don't think it happens anymore, but I saw in some instances where there'd be about eight stands of different states that were just. It was it was sad. It was just sad right. because there's there's no there's no sense, and the industry had to talk the tourism industry talked the government into letting them make at least an official website 
because we were one of the last countries with an official website. Right. So you can imagine, you know, you're in <laughs> South America, and, you know, what's Connecticut, and is that close to Oregon? And can you take the train from Omaha to Minneapolis? No, there's no train there. Right. And what is, it, what is Amtrak? Is that a train? And does that have anything to do with Cascadia? I mean... All those questions. So, and I think those are all things you hear when you travel internationally. I've I've heard horror stories of, you know, friends in Ireland that thought like they'll take the Greyhounds in New York, and they said it was the most dangerous ride of their life. The Greyhound bus. I was like, well, I would never take the Greyhound bus. Well, I'll stick up for Greyhound. I'm sorry, I'm going to stick up for Greyhound, but it's it's hard enough for Americans to understand the United States, and it was appalling that it was the last. We were one of the last countries with a national website. It's paid for in part by um, I think a tax that goes back into it, but um, and there it's in enough languages. But still, uh, it also the the um, the Republican push to get rid of tourism and um, in government meant that you can't U.S. embassies no longer help people who want to travel to the United States. In the olden days, there would be someone. Um, you know, a lower level, but someone deputized it. If you know you need, you know, if you need some help arranging something, you could be able to tell them, blah blah blah. No, 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 no. no. Yeah. So it's um, whereas a country like France has a tourism specialist in every foreign embassy. And so is so when I read your book, I am like, she loves France. France is number one for her for destination management. Is that is that still true, or is that is that even an accurate? Uh, well, they were pioneers, away? and when I did the book, the book was published first in 2013, and then I updated it in 2015, and and I'm trying to consider if I'm going to do another update. But um, then it was it was it's it's the it's. It is the old school best example. Um, they're the first ones to take it seriously. They, they were the first ones to understand the importance it would have on culture mm -hmm. and the economy and to put it all together. So you saw what I saw, that at the federal, at the, our national, at the national level, every department works together on tourism. So agriculture those subsidies to make sure that all those fancy restaurants have the right thing, whether they're in the south of France or in the north. Um, the culture ministry, very much, they, they supply, they make sure that regional uh, museums have the right art and the right painting. Their festivals, be it music, photography, whatever, are scattered around the country, so every part is visited. And um, they have specific examples in Bordeaux, was the one I chose. It was brilliant. Where you, um, it was a Bordeaux was a great city, but down in the hill for at least 150 years. So you you can see the beautiful buildings. You can see the 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 brilliance of the original planning. It's on a river that was their major um, Atlantic port, just a river that goes flows into the Atlantic, and they had a brilliant mayor who he didn't call it destination management. He just said. We're going to fix up Bordeaux. Yeah. And he knew that, he, as he told me, if I made it wonderful for my citizens, the tourists would come. So it always worked. He knew that the secret was, I want it to be beautiful the way it can be. And to that effect, he got rid of the, all the cars and all the horrible freeways and had a pedestrian center. He installed electric trams. Mm -hmm cleaned up the f 
the riverfront, which was uh, crowded with with um, scuzzy old warehouses, uh, created a, a museum of wine because I hope. No, no, nothing against Oregon, but you guys do know that Bordeaux is <laughs> is um, is a great wine country. It's got pretty good wine, yeah. But and the shock to me was that until he did this, the great vineyards refused to have anything to do with the city. Isn't that amazing? They just saw no value. In oh, they, they 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 were too good for the city. Oh, right. I, I mean, the city had fallen apart. I mean, yeah, yeah. The <laughs> they were busy making these world class products. They couldn't and, deal and, with and, that. And, and the city itself, it, it was down on the hill. And why would they they take? Well, he makes this beautiful city, new symphony hall. The the oh gosh, the, he redid, the, got rehabbed this beautiful opera house. You can't believe how beautiful the city is now. Anyway. So he had he had one woman. He hired a woman who, whose sole remit is was, convince the vineyards that we're one, and that it's really good if we share tourism. And it worked. There's now for the first time a few years ago. What was it? 2015, I think. Imagine, 2015, 2014. First time they had a tasting in the city of all the wines. Isn't that incredible? Agritourism people listening to this are like, of course, of course. <laughs> right. And so, but you don't have you know, centuries of, of social hierarchy and stuff like that. But um, so now, and, and I interviewed for a separate article, I interviewed this really cool old guy who um, said, one, besides showing his wines to visitors, he said, I actually get to taste my neighbor's wines and I never had before. <laughs> Wow, <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, but um, so you you really wrote this book with this great sense of curiosity and also just really astonishment, right? Yes, that right. no one else was talking about this. That that this isn't being recorded. That our like our our own country doesn't have this organized. So did you just sort of seek out, hey, who's doing this right? Who's doing this wrong? Is or how did you kind of select some of these destinations? I think we go to France, Italy. We take a little trot around the world um, with your book. Right, and you, it's the Middle East, Asia, everywhere. Um, it, it helps to have had all my years' experience as a journalist because some of it just is instinctive. But you uh, you look at the industry. So I wanted I did a, uh, the cruise ships, which were I had no idea how atrocious they were, and I'm not apologizing. Any any cruise industry person who read, reads my book know that my critique is environmental hazards beyond belief, hurting the, the culture of where they go. Um, now, I found all these studies that Library of Congress, I mean, all these places, they did these amazing studies. Yeah. Nobody paid. And then that brings up the other thing, is that it's incredibly wealthy, politically plugged in industry. So cruise ships are one of the least regulated. They'll say they're heavily regulated, but they're flagged and registered in different countries so they can avoid the minimum wage, for instance, um, all kinds of rules. Anyway, so I did it by, and you can see it in the book, I did by culture, cultural tourism, um, nature tourism, urban tourism, so on and so forth. And I, I looked for good and bad. Right. I looked for areas. Obviously, I was a little more, um, if I knew a region, I wanted to go to a place where I didn't have to start from scratch, a country that I would know. And um, and I think I asked the question that a, that a, a, 
an outsider would ask, which is what you have to do in a book like this. And, you know, I had investigative journalism um, background, and I knew, I knew once, whenever, I knew where you could find, it didn't take me long to figure out where the issues are and that sort of stuff. And, and um, so, for instance, on the cruise part, I took a classic mass, mass you know, uh, I think it was Royal Caribbean cruise, where I saw all of the problems. You, you know, you you don't have to go undercover. You buy a ticket and you get on and you can see exactly what wrong it is. And just ask some questions while you're there. Oh yeah. How are you getting of, paid? Yeah. You know, I think in your book you say at the in the middle or at the end of your trip you have this this sheet that says recommended tips for everybody. And that's because they're paid fifty dollars a month. Right. Fifty dollars a month. And um and then I so and then I then I got an interview with the head of. Royal Caribbean, and he confirmed everything, and that's the way it works. And and I had um, a, a, a top U.S. official who tangentially works on tourism thought she knew everything. She said she was shocked by the cruise in a chapter. Right. So this whole, I mean, this book, I'm, I'm at. So this came out in 2013, and then the re. Um, uh, then I've uh, updated it in 2015, and I'm, you may be getting a 2020-something edition. Oh, I sure hope so, because just, <laughs> I think a lot has changed, right? Yeah, right, right. But, but the, only if I don't have to rewrite the whole thing, which I will not do. <laughs> I, I don't blame you. To, I refuse to do I don't it. blame you. Um, yeah, so I think one of the examples of that you use in the book of someone who's not doing it right, mm-hmm. someone that it just it was Italy, right? Is it Was it Italian that... Um, you Venice. Might, Venice, specifically. Now, it's... And not, and not doing it right. That's... Venice is... Um, the Venetians really want to do it right. And it's their, it's the political leadership that kept getting in their way. It was the industry that kept getting away. So I'm not going to say the Venetians sure. didn't get it right. And I have to say the update is, finally, during the pandemic... After winning their case at the local level and the regional level and the national level and still being thwarted, I won't go into the politics or <laughs> what I consider a little um, you know, lobbying or money under the table. Finally, um, last year, the Italian prime minister himself said, OK, we will not allow big cruise ships into Venice. A huge it, win. Huge win. But... My gosh, 25 years, 20 years. Right. And I think that's a, a takeaway that I had from the book was really the role of government in successful destinations. Mm-hmm. But what I feel as a destination and when I'm interviewing folks about these different case studies is that a lot of times government isn't at the table. No, it's they don't take it seriously or the industry doesn't want the government at the table. You have both yeah. sides. Sure, because they don't want more rules. and Okay. And... Um, and are you mostly talking to Americans? Uh, I go kind of all over the place. Okay. Yeah. Because in um, in America, in the United States, you have such a push and pull over um, civic activists who want government involved, and the others who who think government involvement is 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 the curse of death, and um, unless it's their topic. But um, <clears throat> the uh, the most recent example of this, and and this is one of the things I'm looking at at the conference, is that during the pandemic, in that pause, everybody saw what it was like without tourism. Now, 
The first thing is, oh my gosh, we're losing money. The second thing is, oh my gosh, there's no tourists. And the sky is clear. There's dolphins in the canals. We can see the Himalayas. That's straight out of my last piece. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And so in Key West, we all know wonderful Key West, Florida, the island. Ernest Hemingway lives there. Bohemian lifestyle. Um, they, for years, they had been sick of the cr- cruise ships because they would just flood they come in, flood, flood all their lives, and, and you know they were sick of it. During the pandemic, they passed three referendum, and as a West Coaster, you, you're up to here with referendum. But they passed three that together forbid any big cruise ship from docking at Key West. Um, uh, prescribed that they that only two oh, that only uh, small boats, I think 250 passengers, but a small only pa- small ones could could dock, and then they would. They would only be there for a certain number of days a week. They couldn't come every day. Thrilled. Victory. Um, uh, the, the guy who owns the dock and the industry were furious, and they um, successfully lobbied Tallahassee, Florida State Legislature, and Governor Ron DeSantis to totally block it. They passed a law he signed that said no locality, no destination, can decide um, what ships can dock. Isn't that wild? And so, it, so it prevents not only Key West, but any other Florida port. Right. And today, so we've been listening to a number of speakers throughout the day today, and I had a quote from somebody, um, and they were saying, hey, this the international world, international declarations or committees, they're not coming to save us. It's up to locals and regions and cities to really get our act together. And mm-hmm. so it's so frustrating when you hear these cases where, uh, but you, cities can't. You guys can't decide what you're going to do, right? Well, it's it's, um, and we have a particular. We're in a particular mess right now as a country where um, so locals, local voice you like unless you don't like it. States write and get until you don't like it. I mean, it's we're bouncy ball. Um, I, I am personally terrified of wh- where, what's happening with our democracy, but um, but I see it. Everything I cover, I see it. And this this tourism of Key West was a perfect example. Right. I mean, why? I, I get, I, I, um, there's another instance where I didn't write about it, but um, there's an island called Tybee off of the coast of um, Savannah, Georgia. They called and said, could you just give a Zoom talk because we're having a horrible trouble with Airbnb. Okay, here we go. I think all go. of our coastal listeners, we're all coastal destinations, are tuning in right now. Cruise ships and Airbnb. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the two things I'm always asked to talk about. And um, so during the pandemic, um, some uh, outsiders, hedge funds, swooped in anytime there was a problem, you know, someone had a house for sale instead of selling it. Locally, all of a sudden, these hedge funds were paying a lot of money and buying them out. And they woke up one day, and huge, you know, nearly 50% of the houses were Airbnb. Yeah. And they had, they were caught unawares. They, um, they, what is Air, excuse me, what is Airbnb? They didn't have regulations that specifically um, could be applied to them. And so they wanted to, 
to find out if anybody else had that problem. <laughs> so, <laughs> <You're>, oh, yeah. <laughs> and so <laughs> they're, oh, yeah. they're just lovely. Um, and, uh, you know, that nice southern hospitality. Yes, and, and they say, you're kidding. You can't be that. And so they were lovely. Anyway, so I don't, they, they, I, I asked who controls the city council, and she said, everybody's worried. And I said, well, everybody who's worried should get someone in to write a new um, new law and pass it. Um, but this is a legal issue. This, there's nothing uh, magic. It's not boo-boo. And you don't, you know, if if you have a council, well, what if, what if? I said, well, you pass it, and then you, f- you can do your what ifs. And so I spoke... They had a, a, a meeting, and, and I spoke to it, and I don't know what happened, but uh, right. this is not the only one. I have, to, I have to, as my husband says, you have to learn to say no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can't be every, although I assume it feels like you can be all over the place now. No, but it's exhausting. <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah. I don't know if you feel the same way, you're Oregon, but, uh, you know, you come up to Canada, and you're in a different world. I mean, I, I wrote down today, one of the panels, they said, hey, what are your bright spots? that you're rallying around right now. And it was, it's really nice to hear that because that's how I feel. And I totally appreciate that there's been a lot of hardships over the past couple of years and it's, but there has been some things positive that have come out of it. And when people say, Oh, when we go back to the way things used to be, it is just like nails on chalkboard to me, or we've always done it this way. And I I also recognize that I'm a younger person and I haven't been in the industry, but I always get excited. And so what I wrote down, some of the answers they had about what are the bright spots that we're going to rally around now because of the pandemic, we had indigenous tourism. Mm. Uh, They said that Canadians have never been more ready for indigenous tourism than they are now. Uh, Consumer sentiment and preference, which I have a question for you about that. Uh, Recognition of the value of tourism by governments. And uh, and Canada's tourism renaissance. And renaissance has been thrown around a lot today. Well, I would be a little more specific. What I loved was um, the example of uh, the marine, small craft marine group, a very skilled, talented group of um, ships that do boutique niche uh, cruises in the most rugged coastline. I mean, you you would be impressed from Oregon. It's just extraordinary. And instead of, the, you know, they say, oh my gosh, we have no no work. The whole group of, and they, and they, she said, they were all competitors. They got together, put together a plan, showed each, showed, opened up their business. This is Shamish Wood Plus. And the plan was to clean up the coast. I mean, What's more Canadian than to to be that collaborative, and they um, and that so it's not just a plan. They are practical, and they make the plan. They have their budget to take it to the um, the the BC British Columbia province Ministry of Environment, and then of course they said yes. And three point two million dollars later, they this her her her, her enormous um, cleanup, and we saw what it took. They were scaling cliffs. They were using helicopters to take these the shots of the helicopter bringing the trash down on the barge and the trash was not you know little bottles these are huge it's all marine refuse it was i think i'm sure i saw on that slide 750,000 tons tons Tons. of trash that they got and along the way four whales um entrapped by garbage that they they um that they were able to save the whales Yeah. yeah entangled um that's 
the kind of spirit I saw in in and read about in other places. And uh, Venice, of course, is one of my favorites. That that the prime minister took it upon himself to say no more cruise ships in Venice. Right. Um, Berlin uh, opened up their main north-south boulevard. I mean, closed it off to to cars, a big portion of it that they'd always wanted to experiment with. Right. And. And even the critics said, ah, oh, this is not bad, because you've got more pedestrian. A lot of cities, from Milan to Paris, were opening up much more to pedestrian. You know, I, I have a Parisian son-in-law who was not happy with that, but, you know, they'll have to get used to it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, there was just... The, the people who took advantage of it generally had already been thinking about this stuff. Right. And that's why... It's very good to have those lists and keep thinking. And on the indigenous, the the indigenous tourism has been remarkable, way pre-pandemic, and um, and uh, Canada may have. Well, it's so hard to compare the United States and Canada. It's very hard. However, um, when during the pandemic, the Greys were discovered in the residential schools. And I hope your listeners under, were reading the newspaper and are watching the news, however you do it, listening to the news, to understand that this this horrified, because not all Canadians had accepted that the residential schools where children were taken, Indigenous children taken out of their families, and then they were abused, and those graves where the kids were killed. Right. It's like discovering the graves in Ireland of those horrible you know, schools. Um, that woke up Canada even more to the importance of the indigenous community. And you heard Keith Henry, and I've been watching him for years. He's just a dynamo. Yeah. And so that was part of the education. And then the Catholic Pope, Pope Francis, who's a good guy, invited indigenous Canadians to the Vatican to apologize to them. And Keith Henry, and this is, we're getting back to tourism, Keith Henry with the other elders said, okay, I'll bring our cultural voice so that we will be drumming our elders when they leave Pope Francis's audience. That drumming and the dancing was all over the news. And it was, when I, and when I, when I realized that was Keith doing, I just said, of course Keith did that. Yeah. And that's the, that's, that's the, um, that shows the breadth and depth of tourism, which is what I loved about Bordeaux and any other place, where it involves the, the, the landscape, the cityscape, the infrastructure, the culture, and primero, the people. Yeah. So it's, 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 you will find that you just, you, it's like falling in the lap of something. And it's not a bunch of business people and, and tourism officials using all these acronyms, and you want to leave the room, you're bored to tears. <laughs> <laughs> we can't have that. There no, has no. been no boring panels today. I have been sitting in awe. So something I wanted to ask you about is, this is getting brought up a lot today. I hear it happening all the time. This is a conversation that sustainable sustainable tourism professionals talk about all the time, and it's this idea of a high-value guest the high value visitor. And I, I always do that sound, you know, you're like, you suck on your teeth because 
So for here's an example. I'll just throw myself under the bus. On the Oregon coast, we say that our high value visitor is someone that wants to spend a long amount of time, you know, a week or so rather than a day tripper, spend money locally. They want to respect the environment. And these are all great things. Mm -hmm. But for us, that generally means Australia, New Zealand, Germany, Canada, like these usually like white people with money. Mm-hmm. And, it, and at the same time, we're like, well, we want to be more equitable. We want to be more, have more diversity, equity, and inclusion. But to me, these high value visitors are generally people that have money and education and are well-traveled. And so are you seeing any conflict in these two things that are happening of finding this unicorn or this high value guest, but also this, this effort towards diversity? Well, first of all, <laughs> I think it's, I've always resisted all of that. But let me tell you, everybody wants the people who stay long. No one likes day trippers because they cost more than they, 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 they flood. There are too many tourists now. We haven't even said how many tourists there were before. Um, there was over a billion tourists before the pandemic. Um, the whole idea of tourism has changed dramatically. And, and I'll just say one thing to start to, to start my answer. There was a mayor, and I, I think he was in Amsterdam, who said, in Amsterdam, who said something to the effect, you know what it's like in the last, you know, 10 years or so? It's like giving a party for 12 and 12,000 show up. That's not right. Right. So no one can complain when a locality says, we have a limit. We have a limit. I'm sorry, we have a limit. We cannot just open the gates and have you flood our streets and um, leave behind more trash. That means we don't have the water supplies. For instance, I was just in Hawaii. The tourists, it was like somebody opened the, the gates and they all flooded out. There were so many tourists in the first months that they had to have water restrictions for the locals. Can you imagine how happy the locals were in Maui? Right. Water restrictions. So I, th- I, am, I think it's, uh, you start out with what can the locale support? What can you support on the coast of Oregon? How many? Do you have any idea? Probably not. But and but when you, we talk to people about carrying capacity, it you know how do you define carrying? Is that okay? Once all the parking spots are full, yeah, yeah. Once all the trash cans are full, who gets to decide the carrying capacity? Who? These are questions we ask communities. But no one. Does. I mean, you can see it. You have you have a mayor, you have a city council, you have you have. Uh, uh, community advisory boards. You have all kinds of people can can. You, it's, Some it's, of our communities do. Where yeah. I live, it's unincorporated, so there's well, but, no government. But it, 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 don't turn it into some data. Right. You know it. You know it. And um, my one of my favorite things was going to, of all places, Las Vegas. They 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 just say you know tourism has to help the city and and it's not everybody's cup of tea, but you know. We, when they, when um, China opened up with gambling in Macau, they knew that they'd lost their t- spot as the high roller place, so they moved to convention. And they have, they have a, a city council just for tourism to talk about the issues, and they meet at least once a month. This is an ongoing conversation. This is not what is the number. That's no. What is the ongoing conversation? Do you want, if you want to have more diverse, how do you you attract it by having you know, a uh, reasonable price. Do you have reasonable price motels? 
that are clean and, and inviting. Um, you want more backpackers. Do you have, you know, what, what are they Hostels. Called? Hostels. Yeah. You know, um, look at Bhutan. <laughs> this is perfect parallel for Oregon Coast. But <laughs> Bhutan said, we're going to, rest- they started out saying, we don't want a flood of tourists. Um, we're going to have this many um, rooms in high end. We're going to have this many in middle. And we're going to have this many hostels. And people go, oh, you're elitist. They said, no, no, no. Tourism is for the Bhutanese. And we're not going to... Now, they're pushed all the time, and it's not perfect. And they have to keep re, rejiggering, and China wants to invade them. And, you know, yeah. real life intercedes. But um, you don't have to turn this into something crazy. Right. Talk to each other. Yeah. And, and, and if you, you know, and you'll get the tourists that you want by just being who you are. Yeah. And Offering you, up those experiences that are actually true to the history, to the have other industries. Do you have ta- are you a tasting? Are you in the wine country? We are not. Okay. We are so, not. But you seafood. Have, we are seafood people. Okay. Well, you know how to get the people you want. And if you want more locals and more Oregonians, you can figure it out. Right. It just is, is, these, these dancing on a pin conversations drive me crazy. Yeah. And I have never, I think... Relying too much on the consumer right. is, is not, you know, every consumer say they want to spend more money for sustainability, but then you see the planes full of people tr- getting drunk before they land. So that <laughs> was going to be my next question for you, because I, 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 I hear this it. all the time. So uh, we've been working on climate action for the Oregon coast, which has been a very interesting thing. Um, and there's always this, this data that says... You know, actually, just reports in the past month or two. Yeah. Oh, they want to. Oh, oh, I'll oh, spend a whole bunch se- more. Seventy percent of everybody wants to have a sustainable trip. It's like these high numbers, and everyone's very excited, and, and I, I like that too. But I want to see the data where visitors are choosing then to actually do it. As I said, I was just in Hawaii, and um, the planes are full, the prices are up, and it's what in the industry they call fly and flop. They fly there and then they flop on the beach. And um, <laughs> glamorous, yeah. Yeah, but and it's up to. I mean, it's you know different beaches in Hawaii. You know, some of them are closing off. They don't want that. Others are making sure that they don't have so many um, hotels. They're restricting the number of hotels. There's ways to restrict. Right. It just, and it's, yeah. it's just don't rely on the consumer. That's passing the responsibility. If you believe that the consumer is going to be so smart to make sure that not too many come to your place and they're not going to be day trippers, no. I mean, Venice now has a, um, it'll be this summer? I think this summer begins their day tripper tax. Right, I, I heard about that. They have a day tripper tax. They don't. They they're not going to completely stop them, but it's not going to be free. And the free means they they didn't have to have a data person to come in and say these people buy a couple cups, a cup of coffee, maybe a glass of wine, and they're gone. Not only are they gone, they leave a lot of waste. They use up. Resources, right? It's and, that burden of tourism, and that comes you know, in. from garbage to water to you know, the whole whole shebang. So, um, I think we're on the same page of saying. So again, going back, we go to these conferences. Everyone gets super hyped up. They applaud because now the consumer wants a sustainable trip. But I agree with you that we don't get to pass the buck to the consumer. We have to make the investments in infrastructure and processes so that everyone 
has to be a part of a sustainable trip. Don't don't leave it up to the consumer. Right. And if you want you want um, uh, you want to have electric buses instead of um, carbon spewing cars, invest. You want to restrict the number of people who um, poop on your trails. Get some compost um, uh, piles in there. Yeah, um, and then and then enforce your laws. And these sweet little countries that have tourists sign that I'm going to be a good tourist when they land. That's really nice, but they, you have to make sure they do. Um, uh, one Savannah, I think. Yes, yeah, is it Charleston or Savannah? One of the cities have a tourism police. And that's mostly to make sure people aren't cheating on Airbnb. Yeah, I think we see some of that enforcement officers or yeah. I can't remember it's what they're so called hard. in some of these I cities. Mean, yeah. and, and Barcelona just got so fed up with it that um, their their mayor, Ada Colau, who's just unbelievably smart, she ran on a ticket to tame tourism, which is she was one. She was really ahead of the crowd. She tried to work with um, Airbnb, but they went from suing her to saying yes. But then they changed it. And da da da. She said, "Okay, basta. Um, I, you can. We're going to start with. You cannot rent a room in your house for less than a month." I lived in Majorca for a couple oh. of years, and when I lived there, there were no there were no there was not Airbnb allowed on the island, which yeah. was great. It was very hard to find housing as a worker there, um, and I worked. But can you imagine if there was Airbnb, you would not have found any housing. Right, right. And um, and uh, and uh, Honolulu, I think he signed it. The legislature, the state legislature, passed a law that you could you can have no Airbnb f- for less than ninety days. Ninety days. That's because you know, among other things, rising rents. Went with Airbnb, and uh, you know the housing crisis gets worse. Yeah. So you know you and um, so there all these issues we're talking about. It makes sense if you can see tourism as an, one issue instead of Airbnb here, cruise ships there, um, portable potties that are composting here, conservation there. I mean, if you have a, a, a a total look at it, and you don't have to be a brain, brainiac to do that. Right. I mean, just common sense. You do that at, you know, you, you've got some, you know, you may not be incorporated, but you've got somebody that can do that. Yeah. Get get it together, everybody yeah, listening I mean, out there. I mean, everybody has their opinion about taxes. Right. Everybody has their opinion that we need much more daycare for our <laughs> children. <laughs> yeah. It's when you divide the pie so thin that you don't see the whole picture, and that's when you lose. And I think that the people in those different pieces of pie don't see each other either. Like you were saying, the the Bordeaux, right? Like the wine not working with the... Like once we start getting... And everyone is so divided that that's a lot of what we do as a DMO in our region is really introducing each other. That's, Are you working with each other? Did you know perfect. that these two cities, 30 minutes apart, you're doing exactly the same thing, and the visitor is doing... The, is it the same visitor going through both of your towns? <laughs> you know, so I think there is a, that, still that need for uh, industry alignment. And you did not have to pay an expert to tell you... To do that, did you? No. 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 <laughs> See, no. that's what I mean. You don't need that. these experts. So you, I mean, that's what this book is all about. I mean, I was no tourism expert. Yeah. 
I, and I, I recommend this book to anyone that's working in tourism, but anyone that's living in a coastal destination, which is most of our listeners, yep. because you're probably working in policy or in conservation or in management yep. or in tourism, because it really highlights the different players in these different case studies. Yeah. And then finally, um, on the other side, I wish everyone worried about the climate crisis all these wonderful people who are dedicating their lives on it would would imagine would it put tourism in your um, mindset that when you're fighting climate crisis you can find allies in the tourist industry and if you include them you're going to have a better outcome I cannot agree more. And I, I've talked about this on my podcast. So we declared a climate emergency a year ago. Mm-hmm. We're a nonprofit um, for our region. And and I just the conversations I have with people where I say we are one of the big tourism is one of the biggest industries, top three in our state. But it's very hard. None of the grant programs, none of these state agencies that all have climate action plans in Oregon. When I introduced myself and I set up meetings, they were like, We're really glad to meet you. This is very exciting. We have no idea what to do with you. We, we didn't think about tourism. You're right. We haven't so, thought about tourism. Well, there, see, you're ahead of the game. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> so I Electric just... <laughs> buses, transportation, the, the huge heavy footprint of some tourist behavior, um, including tourism in all your plans. Just include it. Yes. This is why I have the podcast. Yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> is because the tourism can be and should be such a major partner and tourism has just been booming in coastal areas. Yeah. So um, I mean, uh, the Maine is having their their what is, oh Maine, yeah, the Maine people called me about their cruise ships. And do you you don't have cruise ships, do you? Actually, we do have a port in Astoria. Okay. Yeah, but are not, they careful? I'm not sure. To be honest, <laughs> how to define that <laughs> and how to ensure that. But well, people just you can make demands. You can say, "I only want small cruise ships," and they have and they have to help pay to have our port be electric. Because, like for instance, if you if any of your coastal people have cruises, you can make demands. You don't have to accept whatever you get, and um, and you can push back. And there are lots of places where you can learn about how to make it sustainable. I mean, Vancouver, just across the way, um, they were leaders in sustainable um, Olympics with cruise ships. They demanded that all be able to use electric outlets because the air pollution from one of these big cruise ships is equivalent of 312 million cars a day. You got that from my book, right? Well, um, <laughs> so um, there's all kinds of things that you... You, 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 you have power if you only exercise it. I believe it. And I think it does require everyone yeah. in Vancouver or whatever destination saying, hey, as the citizens, as the business owners, as the tourism officials, as the transportation people, this is what we want. As the artists. As the artists, as the winemakers, right. the perform. This is what we want from our destination. And I think the voices and what I see, what I see at the local government level in Oregon anyways, is that a lot of times if I show up by myself, right, like the sustainable nonprofit, they're kind of like, okay, okay. But when business owners come, when you have a diverse voices, there's so much more power in that alignment. And Oregon has an artistic, big artistic streak. I mean, what's the, the big play you have? Oh, yeah, down in Ashland. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, 
whenever they talk about the kind of tourists they want to come, well, Ashland brings it by itself without doing diddle squat. They bring a certain kind of tourists. And Portland brings a certain kind of tourists. Portland has a lot of, of sort of crunchy granola kind of artsies. <laughs> um, I don't know. I haven't been in Portland a long... It's been too long since I've been in Portland. But there's... You bring what... Who you are. And you can't make it up. I mean, you can... Do if you have a a, a, a diverse population, you're going to have a more diverse tourist. Yeah, I agree. And um, I bet you probably have a Hispanic population. Yes, we do. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. that's diverse. Yeah, have, are you encouraging helping with encouraging Hispanic population to have be part of your tourism picture? Yeah, I think we're definitely not doing a lot, but we're partnering with organizations that work more directly with those communities. Right. Um, so that has been pretty exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you got it there. Right. Don't make it up. You yeah. Don't, have, don't pay someone to tell you what to do. And, cause, and if you, when you do make it up, people can tell. Yeah, a visitor can tell when a destination looks fake or when it seems like there's an inauthentic story happening there. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. Well, I think some big takeaways here um, is that tourism, if they're not already a partner in your community, they absolutely should be. That there are a lot of problems that have that have come with tourism. It's been a booming industry. Uh, I think it will rebound from the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Do you agree? I, I, I hate to try to pretend I know what the future will bring. Okay. I, I mean, in the short term, yeah, um, but the prices are way too high. I think they're gouging. I mean, it's crazy what they're asking for airplane tickets. And they say it's because of the price of fuel, but um, when the CEO takes a cut in the pay, then I'll believe it. Um, <laughs> Um, so I think it's more a question of it, tourism is coming back, but how do we want it to come back? back? And that's but there's we haven't talked about geopolitics and um, the war in Ukraine is affecting you whether you know it or not. Um, that's definitely affecting supplies, food, food from Ukraine, oil from Russia, um, China because of their um, zero COVID, has completely sealed itself off. There are no Chinese tourists. And pre-pandemic, that was the major source of single-nation tourists and the biggest per capita spending. That's changed. I don't know I don't know when and how the COVID um, policy will transition, but I do know that um, there's been... Uh, Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader has said he doesn't want people to be polluted by corrupt Western thought and is not giving out um, travel uh, passports for leisure travel. Very little. He wants to encourage domestic tourism. Now, is this permanent? I have no idea. But this is a... Th- this would not... This has echoes of the time when China did seal itself out in the beginning of the revolution. And, you know, Xi Jinping wants to become, have his third, um, his third next, uh, third time as as the leader of the party in the country. And um, I don't know what this means, but can you imagine, we have Russia isolated by the world because of the hideous invasion of Ukraine, and you have China self-isolating. Those are two huge countries. 
Right. I have no idea what it's going to mean. But I do know that I, I've visited Europe, Hawaii, and now Canada, and there are no Chinese tourists. None. Yeah. There's none. There's no Chinese tourists, and that's unheard of Right. pre-pandemic. How long will this last? You'll have to ask Xi Jinping. But tourism is not separate from the real world. And that's the other thing I always tell people. It's not separate from the world. We, it's not, and we, a full dose of it, obviously, with the pandemic, but also geopolitics. So there you are. Yeah, thank you for bringing up the geopolitics, because that's something I usually don't cover, but it is incredibly important. And I like that you're, you're not going to try to make guesses about the future. How can you? Why should you? Um, but the, the, but you've also said, you know, it's great to start getting yourselves aligned. And what do you want? Because yeah. that's how you can move forward with what we don't know about the future. Yeah. Yeah. And so it does feel... Um, it's resilience. Resilience. You, and if that's another... That's the one word they, they sh- I think they could have said more often so far. You got a hint of it. But resilience in terms... Remember, we are in this one spot on the planet that last year had the most extreme dips in, in, um, in temperature. They went from the heat dome of a crazy 106 degrees to Arctic weather of minus 30. And there's no other place on the planet that had that extreme. Right. So they, they, are, they are living the agro-tourism. They want resilient farming so they didn't have to rely on food supplies. They want resilient um, what was the other? They have all these resilience of, of building up this, that, and the other, protecting against fire and all sorts of things. And that's um, recognizing not this is this was for recognizing natural disasters, pandemic, etc., which is not quite natural, but and, uh, disasters. But resilience also in the face of human insanity, <laughs> <laughs> called geopolitics. <laughs> Yeah, so we've heard a lot of words today about renaissance, but thank you for bringing resilience I'm too. Much, my, my much favorite word. Right. Resilience, we have to have resilience. You can fight the climate emergency, but you have to be resilient while you do it. Excellent. Yeah, well, as we wrap up here, um, I just want to say thank you again so much for joining me. You are this amazing thought leader. You have a great background. Um, Check out Elizabeth Becker and her books, and hopefully we will have a new book on the horizon about tourism, and you know I'll be the first one to to order that. Uh, Any last thoughts as we wrap up? Um, That young people like you should be writing the books. I'll work on that. Okay. Um, Well, thanks again. And thanks for listening in to the American Shoreline Podcast Network. This is your host, Erica Sears on Big Tourism. Tourism.